All right, good morning, friends. Good to be with you. There we go, a couple of people out there awake. It's great to be with you, Carter. Thanks so much for reading our, well, we call it our kids' story, but it's really just a Bible story for all of us. So thanks so much for, for reading that this morning. Great job. For all of you who are here, really grateful for your presence, whether that's in person or online. I realize that uh, we've got people who are from a lot of different um, places in life. Some of you are here and um, you're with us and you've been believers for a long time. Others, um, this whole thing of following Jesus is a little newer for you. And then for some of you, this whole thing just feels like a blind date. Like you don't know what to expect every time you show up, but you keep coming back. And so we're grateful for that. Um, Jesus has something for us today. As we look at John chapter 17, you can open your Bibles there. And as you open your Bibles, I, I want you to think back for just a minute. Particularly those of you who are married. Think back, what was life like back in your dating life? Especially when you were like high school, college. Does anybody remember this? What life was like? Yeah. So um, for a lot of us, when we, were, when we were growing up, like I grew up in the, um, I was dating kind of in the 90s. And so back then, cell phones weren't a thing. They weren't a thing back then. I mean, they were, but very few people had them. And so what we did have was we had prepaid phone cards. And I was talking with a friend about this this last week, and we were joking around remembering how we would be on the line with our girlfriend, and he'd be like, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I just want to hear your voice. I'm just going to stay on the line to hear you breathe. And the thing was, the whole time, we're paying for these prepaid phone cards. We're racking up like hundreds of dollars where we're like paying for more minutes because kids, y'all don't understand this, but but. Minutes weren't unlimited. We were on a physical phone line, and you literally had to pay for every minute that was long distance. And so we're like, yeah, are you still there? I'm still here. Do you need to go? No, I'm just going to stay another minute with you. You know, we were poor because we spent all our money on the phone cards, right? And so we'd go out on a date. We'd be like, we don't have a lot of money. We'd be like, we'll just get a large fry at McDonald's. We'll split it. It's fine. We just always love being with one another, you know? But things change when you get married, right? You have very little time to talk to one another. And then you show up, and you're rushing, and you get home, and you're like, honey, who ate my fries? Did you eat my fries? There's some fries missing. Who ate my fries? Like, where'd my fries go? What happened to the relationship where it was just like, we just want to be with each other? But we were willing to share fries, right? Things change along the way. Everything changes when you get married. And that's not a bad thing. But I always say if it's good if you know in life, particularly in marriage, and in this race of life, it's good if you know some of the hurdles that will be in front of you. So when you see the hurdle, you can prepare for it and have time to jump, right? Because if you're not prepared and you meet a hurdle, what happens? You trip over it. In the text that we read today in John 17, we're going to look at verses 6 through 19. Jesus is praying for believers. Last week, we looked at an introduction to prayer. And we answered the question, how do you pray for yourself? 
And we said the goal of prayer is not specifically to pray more, although that will be the case as we mature in prayer and grow in prayer. But the goal or the target is not necessarily just to pray more for the sake of praying more. And it's also not to pray better, but instead to pray wholeheartedly so that all of our life is submitted to Jesus and prayer simply becomes a natural part of who we are in the everyday stuff of life as we are learning to submit our hearts and our lives and our souls regularly to Jesus throughout our day. And so, I challenge you to consider praying morning, noon, and evening, three times a day to consider those daily offices, even if it's just for a minute, just to pause and to give your heart to the Lord and to take just a moment and and to try that for three weeks. So last week and this week and then the week after Thanksgiving, just to, to try that challenge and to incorporate that new rhythm into your life and to see what happens. Well, this week, Jesus shows us how to pray for believers. How to pray for believers. He's praying for his disciples. There's also a lot that we as his disciples can learn. And so I use that dating and marriage analogy to introduce this topic. Because in the same way that we need to know what we're going to face in marriage and what those hurdles are going to be, We also need to know as believers, as followers of Jesus, what the hurdles are that we are going to face in this life. And Jesus helps us to understand that as we look at Jesus' prayer for believers. The big idea today is this. Without prayer, we simply will not follow Jesus. Without prayer, we will not follow Jesus. Pick up in John 17, along with me, beginning in verse 6. Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Jesus' words are a strong reminder to us. If you look back at verse 6. That it's God's choosing of us. Because of his grace that we're believers. It's God's choosing. That God's undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor is given to us freely because of Jesus' work on the cross. Not because we're holy enough, or not because we're better, but simply because God in His goodness has chosen us to be His children. And He has given us the opportunity to then respond to Him. And so we have no ability to boast in anyone or anything other than Jesus. And Jesus' prayer reminds us of that. 
Jesus introduces this section by explaining that he's praying for his disciples specifically. So he's praying for those who God has given him who have believed. Now that would have been, in this context, the 11 disciples who are still with him. Judas has now gone away. It probably would have included some of the women who also were a part of his party of disciples. Luke 8 actually tells us that it was some particular women who most likely funded Jesus' ministry. And then we'll see in Acts chapter 1 that it's about 120 that are a part of a small group who are still followers of Jesus after his resurrection. So Jesus is praying for, in particular for the 11 specifically, but also for some of these who are in the kind of the next ring of relationships out. And he's praying for these believers and he's also There's a lot that we can learn as a result of his prayer. This is the upper room discourse, you'll remember. It's the second half of these last few moments of Jesus' life. Just the last few hours before he'll be arrested and tried. He'll be shipped back and forth between the high priest and Pilate. Finally, he'll be beaten right to the point of death. And then he'll be crucified and laid in a tomb. So it's just moments before that. And Jesus is praying for believers. And in these last moments, he prays three things for them. And these are things that we can learn. We can guard against these things as Jesus prays. Because we can know that these three things are going to be things that we are going to struggle with in the Christian life. Because this is what Jesus is, he, is what he prays for. So he prays first for unity. He prays secondly for protection, probably not in the way that we would think he would. And finally, he prays for mission. He prays for unity, for protection, and for mission. Look with me. First for unity. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus is referring to Judas there. So as Jesus prays that his disciples would be kept in his name, that they may be one, he says to the Father, even as we are one. Really quickly, I want to look at where does unity come from? And how can it be lost? And then, how can it be maintained? Where does unity come from? How is unity lost and how can it be maintained? Well, unity comes from the gospel. You might be surprised to hear this, but unity doesn't mean we all look alike. Unity doesn't mean that we all vote alike. Unity doesn't even mean that we all always respond alike. Unity isn't as much about what we do, but rather who we are. It's more about what motivates us, that we are sons and daughters of God. And oneness with God always results in oneness with one another. Oneness with God always results in oneness with one another. So in moments where we aren't experiencing oneness with one another, 
Either we or the other party aren't experiencing oneness with God. And that's something to be explored. I've talked to lots of Christians during the election and during the pandemic. And their opinions are very different. But that doesn't mean that they aren't unified. Jesus is speaking of the unity of a common mind and purpose that comes from being called out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. He's talking about a unified mission in knowing God and following him. And it results in humility and service to others and an unqualified mutual love. Unity is always the result of the gospel. And so unity comes from the gospel, but it is maintained. How can unity be maintained? Well, I think more important than any time in my lifetime since I've been pastoring, the last 20 years or so, I think more important than any other time that I can remember In my lifetime in the church, this is a very important time for us to to work at being unified. It feels like in the church today, if we aren't careful, in the past, maybe we had been a part of a church and there were 100 people or 300 people or 1,000 people. No matter how many people there were, that's not a lot of people in light of the world, right? But oftentimes it would feel like, hey, there's only a hundred of us here, but we're on the same team together. And this last year, it hasn't always felt that way for believers. There's been oftentimes that it's felt like, hey, we're all here, but we're not on the same team. And so unity is most important. One thing that that I want to warn us as a church about in the day and time in which we live is that unity cannot move at the speed of technology. Unity cannot move at the speed of a click or a swipe. Unity always moves at the speed of relationships. And if our relationships are merely defined by what we post without conversations or explanation, we'll never experience unity. And so be very careful um, about what you click and what you swipe. It happens in a moment, but it doesn't always bring unity. Unity always happens at the speed of relationships, not the speed of technology. And unity is maintained through oneness, Through humility and service, we see it best displayed in the Trinity. And that's what Jesus prays for. He prays that that same eternal dance of God that's taken place between Father and Son and Spirit would exist between us. In the same way that Jesus glorified the Father in humility and submission and obedience. In the way that the Spirit would then point to Jesus and glorify Him. And so it prompts us to ask the question, are we in our own lives, are we promoting unity or are we promoting self? Because it's always going to be either one or the other. Are we promoting unity or are we promoting self? Unity is most easily maintained when we remain protected and on mission. 
And that's what Jesus is going to pray for. Look, secondly, as Jesus prays for believers, he prays first for unity. Secondly, he prays for protection, but probably not in the way that you would think. Look at verses 13 through 16. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that you may have my joy fulfilled in themselves, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so as a result of that, look at verse 15. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus is praying for disciples' protection, but it's not what we would think. It's not at least how I would pray for my own children. When I'm praying for my kids and they're in a dangerous situation, I'm going to pray for them and then I'm going to get them out of that dangerous situation. I'm going to get them as far away as possible from that dangerous situation. I I want to protect them. But Jesus does something that's, that's unique, and I think it kind of runs against what's natural within us as followers of him. And so we need to pay particular attention to this. Jesus doesn't pray that we would be protected and then remove us from the evil. He prays that we would remain in the world, and as we're in the world, he prays that we would be protected from the evil one. Now, I'm convinced that one of the main reasons Christians have lost their joy is because they're no longer in the world. That might sound strange. You might say, hold on, Scripture calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. And so, how would we lose joy by not being in the world? Well, I'll say it this way. It's not nearly as fun... To be light in the light as it is to be light in the darkness. Your kids can attest to this. At Halloween, you take those little glow sticks and you break them. And your kids could care less about them because you're, you're taking those things and you're chaining them around. You're using the little beads to chain them together and you're hooking them around and putting them around their necks Your kids think that you love them so much that you're giving them these little glow sticks. What they don't understand is that you're actually putting them on them so you can keep up with them when they go out trick-or-treating at night, right? I mean, this is not for your kids. This is for you. But then when they get in their bedrooms at night, what happens? That's when the fun begins. When the sugar crash happens... And they're all, they're, they're trying to, they're kind of laying there in bed. They're kind of dazed and confused. It's like a, two hours past their bedtime. They've had more sugar than they have on almost any day the rest of the year. And as they lay there, they stare at these glow sticks that are hung up in their room. And they're mesmerized by them. Why? Did the glow sticks change from the time they went out trick-or-treating to the time they went to bed? Was it the sugar? No. It's the darkness. It's so much more fun to have light and to be light in the darkness than it is to be light in the light. When we find ourselves as believers in holy huddles and Christian bubbles, 
And we try to protect ourselves and our kids from all the evils of the world by only hanging around other Christians. And then we wonder why we don't have a robust faith or sometimes any faith at all. I'm convinced that Christianity must be lived out in the world or it will not be lived out at all. Which means, as Neil Cole has often said, we're going to have to learn how to sit in the smoking section. Which gets pretty stinky sometimes and can feel uncomfortable. But that's what Jesus did for us. We can't expect those who don't know Jesus to wander into the church building. That's just not going to happen. And so we have to learn to go where they are. And that means we have to be willing to sit in the smoking section sometimes. And to be uncomfortable. And sometimes to even place ourselves in situations that might seem a little stinky. Jesus said... That we must go to them in order to build relationships. He would say things like, we must, we must do what doesn't make sense to us. We must leave the 99 to go after the one. That doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus is calling us in our lives as he calls us, as he prays that we would be protected. He's calling us to live in a way that not only is just countercultural. He's calling us to live in a way that doesn't really make sense to the natural man and to the natural mind. It only makes sense to the spiritual man. That we would go and that we would be light in the darkness. That we would leave the 99 to go after the one. We must be willing to do that if we're going to be faithful and if we're going to be fruitful Otherwise, spiritual complacency will, sit, will set in. And when spiritual complacency sets in, familiarity always breeds contempt. Meaning that we lose our joy and we lose our delight in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. We lose our passion for Jesus and the change that he's brought into our lives. The forgiveness that he offers. And the cleansing that he gives us. And the relationship. In the way that he has restored us to the Father. And that he is our joy. And that he is our peace. We lose that. One of the greatest ways to overcome spiritual complacency. Is to just regularly hang out with non-believers. Make it a rhythm in your life that you have non-believers who are um, just part of your normal schedule. And all of a sudden, you are regularly reminded of the great forgiveness that God has offered us. And how much Jesus really matters. And how bright Jesus' light truly is. I was at the barber shop yesterday with a couple of uh, my youngest kids... And um, the barber shop, it just is, it's a rough house that we go to that's kind of like a makeshift barber shop that's kind of set up. And a, a guy who's a good guy who's just trying his best just to make it. And as I sat and I just listened to the music that he was playing through a big speaker uh, on his phone, I was just reminded 
man, this is not the kind of music I listen to. And as I heard the lyrics, um, and just over and over again, the way that women were spoken of, and the way that all hope and joy was just put in money, and what's erotic, and things that are just of this world, it just it saddened my heart for their barber. Because I don't, I don't listen to music like that. And th- there's not even music like that that's played on the radio. Um, but I was just reminded, like, this is what the darkness is light. And, and we need to keep being light to him and to others who are around us. It's much more fun to be light in the darkness than it is to be light in the light. Jesus asked, however, that we would be kept in the world and that we would be kept from the evil one. Because the temptations of the world are real and they are powerful. Finally, he asked that we would remain on mission. Look at verses 17 through 19. He prays that we would be unified, that we would be protected, and that we would remain on mission. In verse 17, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. You're either on your mission or you're on Jesus' mission. Hear hear me again, Christians. You're not living this life kind of giving a little bit of yourself to Jesus. The Bible says that you are either on your mission or you are on Jesus' mission. There's no neutral and no in-between. And Jesus prays for the sanctification of his disciples. Now, he's not asking that they be a holy huddle who tell sinners to not get the carpet dirty or to take off their, their hats when they come in, in the church building. They're not, he's not asking that we be sanctified little church ladies or little churchmen. That's not what he's asking for. But he is asking, he's praying that we would be sanctified so that he will remain our passion. That he would remain our joy Instead of all the idols of this world that are good things that would seek to steal our joy. Good things like work and family and career and hobbies and safety and security. Approval. Achievement. Even our own appearance can sometimes become an idol to us. All of these can fuel us more than Jesus does. And so the easy way to ask and figure out, are there idols in my life? Are there things that I am worshiping more than Jesus? Is just simply to say, what fuels me? I mean, what gets me cranked up? What do I get passionate about? What do, I get, what do I get loud about? What do I talk to my friends about? And if there's anything that you are more excited about and that you spend more of your time and energy and your resources and it gets you cranked up more than Jesus, then it's worth exploring and asking the question, do I need to repent? Am I putting my hope In something more than Jesus? Am I living my life for myself or am I living my life for Jesus? Let me ask you this who does all your stuff belong to? 
your house, your cars, your 401k, your job, even your kids. Who does it all belong to? You're either going to view that it belongs to you or that it belongs to Jesus. There's no in-between. Which means you either see all those things as ways that you can serve Jesus or you see those things as things that are yours to protect and to preserve because you hope they will give you joy. The warning comes in Scripture. Remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? He didn't go away with joy. He went away with sorrow. Because he had great possessions. And that passage doesn't teach us that money is evil. That's not what that passage teaches us. The passage teaches us that the the young man, the rich young ruler found greater value and worth in his possessions than he did in Jesus. Which simply means he thought that his possessions were more worthy than Jesus was. He thought his possessions could bring him greater joy and greater happiness than Jesus could. No, it might not be possessions for you. You might even think that you're not rich. By the way, you are. You live in America. You are rich. We can have a conversation about that later. If you don't understand that, you're rich. If you're an American citizen. But it doesn't mean that riches are the only thing that can distract us from Jesus. There are so many other idols that we can put our worth and our value. And that we can seek to find our joy in when only Jesus is the one who truly satisfies. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We'll never even begin to see Jesus as our greatest treasure until we come to truly know Him. And we'll remain in His name, protected and on mission as we remain in Him through prayer. But without prayer, we will not follow Jesus. I want to invite the band to come up and... Um, As they come up, I just want to take a moment and I want to invite you to just enter into the practice of beginning to just slow down. Coming into Thanksgiving week and uh, this moment where we would have gratitude uh, for all that we have in our lives and most importantly for all that Jesus has done for us and as we begin to pray I've invited you consider the daily offices just morning noon and evening even if it's just for one minute that you would pause in the busyness of our lives and of your world in the busyness of of going from email to email to email and task to task to task and and internet to social media and we literally see enough information cross our digital paths in a day that it could crash a laptop back in the day 
And we move from thing to thing to thing. And the, and the point is this. Our souls cannot keep up with the speed of our lives. We crowd Jesus out. And so I want to invite you just right now to move into a moment of meditation with me. Where we just practice. What would it be like just to open up our souls to God? So bow your heads with me for a moment. As you bow your head, practice taking just a minute. Take a deep breath with me. Breathe in. Now exhale. Pause. Take a deep breath in. Now exhale. Now as you quiet your mind for just a moment, think in that quietness and just utter this prayer. Jesus... I give everyone and everything to you. Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. Take a deep breath in. Jesus, and exhale. I give everyone and everything to you. Take a deep breath in. Jesus, and exhale. I give everyone everything to you. Take a deep breath in. Jesus. And exhale. I give everyone and everything to you. And like the psalmist in Psalm 31 who said, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Inhale. Jesus. And exhale, I give everyone and everything to you. Jesus, would you teach us the beauty that comes in relationship with you? The beauty that comes in knowing you, in quieting our hearts as we take a quick walk in the morning. In quieting our hearts as we turn off the radio and drive to a lunch appointment. Of quieting our hearts and just laying our head down for a moment on the steering wheel before we walk in the house. And Jesus giving ourselves and our souls to you. Trusting in you. And believing that you are our joy. And you are our hope our peace. Jesus, thank you for your spirit, the great teacher. May he teach us to slow down, to quiet our souls, to be unified in you, to be protected in you, to be on mission for you, for your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand together with us and sing.